0: You're listening to an encore presentation of a nine days format, J.M. in the A.M., with me, Nachum Siegel, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. It is your Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Uh, we're in a nine days format, spoken word format with uh, Rabbi Barrel Wine. the majority of our uh, of our lectures. Later on today, because it's the third of Av and it's the anniversary of the date that it was originally delivered, uh, my father's eulogy of the Obavich Rebbe delivered at the Rebbe Schlosschen. We will have that for you here at the JM and the AM. So that's all coming up. Uh, Rabbi Barrel Wine. Uh, we are going to conclude part one. Uh, there's a five-part series of his part one on Jews in Europe. The final piece of the part one lecture series is a Protestant Europe, and that's how we're going to uh, begin. This is a, this was a relatively recent lecture, about a year ago, delivered in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Barrel Wine uh, here. Uh, to teach us and uh, inform us about some of the things about Jewish history that we should know about. Protestant Europe is the name of the lecture. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM.
1: Tonight's topic is uh, the uh, Protestant Europe and its effect on the Jews. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church uh, was pretty much under siege uh, for a few hundred years by heresies, different ideas uh, that contradicted Catholic doctrine and uh, the institution of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, which was meant to uproot uh, these types of doctrines, as well as to make certain that those who converted to Catholicism, especially the Jews... Uh, did not revert back to Judaism. This Inquisition was really uh, an act of desperation by the church because uh, it was an admission that, so to speak, the church could not win the war of ideas, and therefore they were going to win it by killing and torturing people. In the uh, 14th century, Uh, The church had, for a period of time, three popes at one time. It was called the Great Schism, or uh, the Babylonian Exile. It came about because the French king uh, was very uh, disappointed in the actions of the Italian pope, and therefore he decided that he was going to appoint the French pope. And the seat of the French Pope was in Avignon in Provence. If you go to Provence today to Avignon you can see the great papal palace there. And for 70 years there was a Pope in Rome and there was a Pope in, there was a pope in Avignon as well. Each one naturally excommunicated the other one. So in heaven they would have a difficult time sorting the matter out. Uh, There was a period of time when the cardinals got together and they said, enough of this. We're going to get a third pope, a compromise pope. And the other popes agreed that they would resign. But uh, when each of the three popes got the job, then nobody resigned. So you had this great schism in the church. It lasted 70 years. That's why it was called the Babylonian exile, and uh, it weakened the church, as you can imagine, profoundly, as any dispute within a religious community uh, weakens that community. After that, uh, you had other uh, types of schisms, Uh, which the church always put down by burning the heretics at the stake. If you go to Prague, in the central square of Prague, there's the uh, memorial to Hus, who was burned by the church for having heretic ideas. Uh, Heresies abounded. Uh, And because of that, therefore, the church felt very threatened the greatest heresy was the Jews Uh, the Jewish heresy was the primary heresy it was the main uh, heresy that denied everything about Christianity and yet the Jews lived in the midst of Catholic Europe, Christian Europe and uh, somehow the church had to contend with that and uh, it wavered between uh, forced conversions, pogroms coming to some sort of accommodation with the Jews but uh, the problem never was solved Uh, just as in our time it has also never been solved and uh, because of that therefore uh, uh, this led to a very uncomfortable relationship now the uh, great crisis of the Catholic Church was about to come. And that first came in the form of the Renaissance. And the Renaissance was uh, a, uh, an idea, basically in Italy but it spread throughout Europe, of uh, restoring uh, the culture that existed in the time of the Greeks and the Romans uh, it emphasized art and music uh, architecture and most importantly it opened the door to science now the Catholic Church unlike Judaism the Catholic Church married itself to Aristotelian not just Aristotelian philosophy but to Aristotelian science and uh, it uh, therefore, was in great danger when all of those scientific ideas were about to be disproved. Uh, the great trial of Galileo Galileo said that the all the planets revolve about the sun. The church said all the planets revolve about the earth. Uh, they forced Galileo to publicly recant his ideas. But once the idea is out there, uh, you can't put it back in the bottle. And uh, it was uh, this uh, scientific error of the church, and there were many such errors, that uh, sooner or later put the church in a very difficult position because of the fact that uh, the wise men of the Renaissance all uh, brought about great change in human thinking. Uh, The world was no longer flat because Vasco da Gama had sailed around it, shown it to be round. Uh, The Sun was the center of the the galaxy and there were other scientific discoveries. Uh, Newtonian physics would come into play the ideas of gravity now all of these things took away these superstitions that had existed until now and to a certain extent uh, the church had thrived on those superstitions and now the scientific fact showed that, that the church was uh, not infallible certainly in terms of science so then uh, there were, part of the Renaissance was that uh, people became, uh, scholars, became interested in Hebrew and in the Bible. For instance, uh, Rabbeinu Avadius Forno, the great commentator to the Bible, to the Chumash that we have, uh, he taught the Johannes Reuchlin, who was one of the leaders of Renaissance thought, He taught him Hebrew. And basically he taught him Chumash. And the Jews were seen as a reservoir of knowledge. The Jews were so... There were no more Greeks left and there were no more Romans left. We wanted to know something about the ancient world. The only ones that knew anything about the ancient world were the Jews. Because they still were the ancient world. And therefore... uh, uh, But you have... uh, you have the phenomena that we all know uh, that the world uh, likes uh, Hebrew but not Hebrews and the world likes Judaism but not Jews and uh, that existed throughout the Renaissance as well. Now the Renaissance had an effect on Jews as well especially Jews in Italy because uh, the Renaissance came to uh, uh, develop a rational world and not an irrational one not a supernatural one and uh, we have here for the first time uh, a basic clash within the Jewish world of ideas uh, beginning with the Ramban and continuing for the next few centuries until the time of the Ari uh, Kabbalah became uh, much more influential in the Jewish world than it had been earlier. In the times of Rashi, we are unaware of Kabbalah. Uh, The Rambam apparently was unaware of it. But now everybody was aware of it. Kabbalah posits a mystical world, uh, a world that uh, negates to a great extent the real world, quote unquote, that we exist in. It reinterprets the Bible and all of rabbinic literature in a different fashion completely. And it introduces a strong strain of mysticism, supernaturalism uh, into uh, Jewish life and Jewish custom. Now, there were those that opposed that. There were those that denied the uh, Holiness of the Book of the Zohar, which tradition ascribed to Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, but it was publicized by a man, Moshe de Leon, in Spain, at the end of the 15th century, and they said that that was de Leon wrote the book. It's not from Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, and it denied pretty much all of the Kabbalistic ideas. Uh, that was renaissance thought renaissance thought was rational whatever you see, scientific and uh, in uh, Italy there were a number of Italian rabbis Aryeh di Modena, Azaria de Rossi and others who uh, led the anti-Kabbalah charge and who uh, were, so to speak, uh, already uh, on the edge of tradition, if not outside tradition. Now, Azaria de Rossi, Azaria Minadomin, wrote a book called The Maori Naim, which proved to be very popular. And the Moori Naim uh, debunked uh, many uh, legends and even Agada. Uh, even uh, traditional Jewish legends and the book gained wide circulation Uh, the Maral of Prague who was a Kabbalist uh, took on uh, De Rossi and uh, bitterly uh, attacked him and in fact had his book banned which only increased its sales as is usually the case Oh, now you had this split, and uh, this split existed for centuries and centuries. In modern times, for instance, German Jewry was hardly ever affected by Kabbalah. And even though amongst Lithuanian Jewry, there were many great Kabbalists, but the Lithuanian Jewry did not operate on a Kabbalistic system, Whereas uh, Hasidic Jewry is purely Kabbalistic. And it operates under that system today. And uh, this is like a uh, disagreement that simmers below the surface. It has to do with a lot of what we see going on uh, in the disputes within the Jewish people. Is What kind of world are we living in? what's the real world and what's the imaginary world and how do we react to either all of this came about in the Renaissance so the Renaissance affected Jews greatly now what happened was that Henry VIII wanted to get rid of one of his wives because he wanted to marry another one and uh, England then was Roman Catholic so he uh, wanted the Pope to grant him an annulment. Now, one of the powers of the church is that it can annul marriages. The church does not recognize divorce, but it does allow for annulment. Now, that's a slippery slope of how to obtain an annulment. The Pope and Henry could not agree for political reasons, diplomatic reasons, all sorts of reasons. So Henry uh, broke off from the Catholic Church and he created the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which is really the beginning of Protestantism, even though the Anglican Church, at its core, is basically an imitation of the Catholic Church, except that it does not recognize the Pope of Rome. Uh, for uh, a long period of time, over a century, there was a civil war in England between the Catholics and the Anglicans, uh, with terrible atrocities committed on both sides, until Queen Elizabeth finally she killed uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic, then James the I was Catholic, but eventually England became officially a Protestant country, but the defection of England was not the main blow to the church. There were no Jews in England at the time, though Henry VIII had a leather-bound handwritten copy of the Talmud in his library, which you can see at the British National Library today. Uh, But uh, there were no Jews, and there were no Jews in France either to speak of, and there were no Jews in Spain because they were all expelled, with the exception of the conversos who constituted a significant part of the Spanish population. Uh, So uh, that didn't really affect the Jews. However, uh, what comes about is... uh, the church had a great uh, fundraising apparatus Rome uh, all all religions require money that's part of their problem if we could have a money free religion a lot of problems would uh, dissipate but everybody has to raise money the money corrupts the money corrupts even Uh, the most holy of items. The Torah says, That the, the corruption of money is such that it blinds the lies to the reality of the situation and it distorts the words of those who are tzaddikim, who are holy people. But even holy people, if they are tinged by money, So then it becomes a problem. Uh, No one has figured out, you know, how to do it without money. Though uh, in our time I would say that money plays a far greater role than it ever has in Jewish life. That's because there is so much money. You know, if everybody is poor, so everybody is poor. So there's not much money around. And uh, the less money around, the less corruption. But when there's a lot of money around, and uh, the demands of religion grow, uh, so then uh, the temptations for corruption are enormous. So the church always needed money. I mean, you take a look at the Vatican, you know, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't built by passing the, the poor box. And one of the ways in the Middle Ages that it raised money, and enormous sums of money, was the sale of what they called indulgences. Now, the idea of indulgences is as follows it's really a great tool. The church has hundreds of saints, maybe thousands of saints. These saints are so holy that they build up credit in heaven. They've got an account in heaven of good things that they did. The church itself doesn't need all of that credit because the church by nature is holy. So it's got all this surplus credit. So it can sell it to you who need it. A person is a sinner. And we have to remember that in the Middle Ages and later even, Hell was a real place. People took it into consideration very seriously. In the modern world, it doesn't exist. Even amongst the believers, it doesn't exist. But in that world, it did exist. And if uh, you look at the art of uh, Hieronymus Bosch and other great painters of the era, and they paint what goes on in hell, it's pretty frightening. It... uh, You know, it gives you pause, let's put it that way. So, if you didn't want to go to hell, you needed credit. And you don't have the credit because you're a sinner. But the church can sell you credit. The church can sell you an indulgence. And the indulgence will allow you to escape hell. Because now you acquired some of the merits of
0: jam in the am i'm not quite sure um looks like we had a slight problem with our lecture from rabbi wine but now i think we can rejoin it and
1: they paint what goes on in hell it's pretty frightening it uh you know it gives you pause let's put it that way so if you didn't want to go to hell you needed credit and you don't have the credit because you're a sinner But the church can sell you credit. The church can sell you an indulgence. And the indulgence will allow you to escape hell because now you acquired some of the merits of saints who didn't need it for themselves so they can help you. That's a crude uh, description of indulgences, but it gives you the idea. And the church sold it. And they sold it on an enormous basis. And therefore, uh, the local parish priest sold it, the cardinal sold it, the bishop sold it, even the pope sold it, depending how much you needed. And everybody took a commission, because there's a brokerage fee in hell also. And therefore, uh, the church became... Uh, overridden with corruption. And then there were fakes. People who dressed as priests and said, they'll sell you, and they really didn't have the goods. So there were con men. I mean, everything was going on. I mean, Judaism never had that system. Uh, Judaism believes that everybody's pretty much on their own. Though uh, in our time, we notice that there are people who are able to sell at least semi-indulgences amongst the Jewish people as well now this corruption eventually reached such levels that the people began to rebel against it and this was the primary reason uh, that a German priest by the name of Martin Luther arose and he had over 90 complaints about the church he nailed them to the door of the cathedral and uh, he demanded that the church reform itself. Uh, The church naturally saw him as a heretic but he had gathered uh, enough popular support, especially in Germany, that the church couldn't get hold of him and they couldn't kill him and he uh, is the father uh, let us say of the Protestant movement certainly of the church that's named after in the Lutheran church and now there was a 30 years war in Europe between the Catholics and the Protestants religious wars never end they resurface in different forms but as we are witness there is no war like a religious war And this 30 years war uh, engulfed Europe, devastated it, and naturally it affected the Jews as well. Now Luther thought that because uh, he revolted against the Catholic Church, he had the same idea that Muhammad had. Muhammad said, well, the Jews don't believe in Christianity because it's uh, semi-pagan, but uh, Islam is completely monotheistic, has no uh, idols or symbols, so the Jews will certainly convert to Islam. And he was quite disappointed when that did not happen. And he, because of that, it turned him into writing very bitter things against the Jews in the Koran. Well, the same thing happened to Luther. Luther thought the objections of the Jews to Roman Catholicism were valid, but that's because Roman Catholicism was semi-pagan, was corrupt, was coercive, and therefore his brand of Christianity, this new Protestantism, would certainly be acceptable to Jews. They would certainly want it. And naturally the Jews didn't want it. It made no difference to them whether you believed in the Trinity or not, or whether you believed in the Pope in Rome or not, and none of those things had any effect upon the Jews. And therefore Luther turned into a bitter anti-Semite, a crude, a vulgar anti-Semite. Many of the things that uh, the Nazis wrote about the Jews were taken straight from Luther's writings about the Jews. Let me just share with you uh, just a few uh, words of his. All the blood kindred of the Jews will burn in hell and they are rightly served even according to their own words as they spoke to Pilate to the Roman Emperor so again the deicide that the Jews are guilty of verably a hopeless wicked venomous and devilish thing are the Jews and he goes on to say uh, the that the Jews are only interested in money and the only Bible that the Jews are ruled by is the droppings from the back of a female pig now, that is not too philosophic uh, but it certainly says what the story was what he felt about the Jews and therefore in the 30 years war The Jews were caught in a vice that no matter who won, they lost. And therefore, as a consequence of the Thirty Years' War, which mainly took place in Germany and Central Europe, the Habsburg Empire, etc., uh, the Jews all tried to leave and moved east into Poland because that was not involved. Poland remained staunchly Roman Catholic, as did Lithuania, as did Ukraine. There the problem was the Eastern Orthodox Church, as I discussed with you last week. But the uh, church itself uh, did not suffer. Poland never became Protestant. And uh, the Jews therefore moved. And you have uh, an enormous Jewish migration into Eastern Europe. Jews settled everywhere in Poland and in the Baltic states and they built their communities there. Now originally they were invited into Poland by the Polish noblemen who felt the Jews would develop the country which they did and the Jews uh, had an affinity to Poland Uh, they called it in Hebrew Polin meaning here we will sleep over the night of the exile. Here, This is This is the place where we'll be. Uh, Jewish life begins in Poland in the 1200s. uh, In the 1500s that we're talking about, uh, it uh, expands enormously. Uh, There were cities that became almost completely Jewish cities. And because of that, therefore, the Protestants did not have much of an effect on the Jews. Because they moved to the Catholic countries. However, and this is a big however, it's a theory that I have uh, researched for a long time, and you all know that I'm never wrong, so that's probably correct. The Protestant Revolution, the Reformation in Europe, the breaking of the power of the Catholic Church, had a great psychological effect on the Jews as well and a religious effect on the Jews. Uh, To put it uh, in an extreme fashion, uh, the Reformation versus the Catholic Church uh, fathered reform against traditional Jewry because it showed that what had been held sacrosanct for centuries And uh, dominant belief, uh, you didn't have to believe that way. You could adjust it to whatever you wanted to. Now, the Protestants split into hundreds of different sects as uh, they exist today. Uh, Christianity is, uh, I I think it has uh, 140, 150 different church establishments it's uh, very uh, badly split with all sorts of ideas and many times the ideas are uh, completely contradictory one to another but uh, the fact that the Protestant Reformation was successful that the Roman Catholic Church could not put it down and not only could not put it down by force but could not put it down by ideas It couldn't overwhelm it, uh, created an atmosphere. Now, in the Jewish world, also, uh, there had always been uh, deviant ideas, different sects, uh, different beliefs. The Karayim, the Karaites existed in Europe, other people existed in Europe. There always was a discussion and there were differing views differing views on uh, Torah I mentioned differing views on Kabbalah different views on a lot of things now as long as the Catholic Church was the Catholic Church so then the Jews could also say well there's no room for differing views we have a great phrase in Yiddish meaning the way it is amongst the non-Jews that's the way it eventually is Amongst the Jews as well. So, as long as there was, so to speak, a monolithic church and there was a set of beliefs that everybody held to be sacrosanct, so then the Judaism also operated under that uh, type of mindset. But when that mindset changed, which is what the Protestant Revolution was, Protestant Reformation, when now it's said, uh, the Pope is wrong, uh, the Trinity is not true, uh, uh, Catholicism for the last thousand years has been telling you stories that is not, that are not true, and the Church is corrupt, all of those things, even though they're not addressed to the Jews, had an influence on the Jews. And uh, no uh, religion is composed of perfect people, and therefore... Uh, We did not have indulgences, but we had other problems. Anyone who studies the rabbinic response of the time will see all sorts of problems that exist in the Jewish world. And therefore, it's easy to criticize. It's easy to throw out the the baby with the bathwater, as we see every day in our newspapers. Now, one of the things that existed in the Jewish world at this time was messianism, the belief in the Messiah. Not only the belief that the Messiah is eventually going to come, it's the Messiah, he's here. We just don't recognize him. So in the 15th century, there was a, a man came, his name was David Haruveni, the great Khan artist. He came and he said that he, uh, you know, there's a Jewish legend that the ten tribes, the ten lost tribes are behind the magical river called the Sambation. And the Sambation is fire and it throws bricks and nobody can escape it, etc. It only rests on Shabbat. And that's where the ten tribes are hidden. And they're going to be hidden there until the Messiah comes and takes them to the land of Israel. This was a, uh, I think, almost a universal belief in the Jewish world, certainly in the Middle Ages. Here comes a man who says he's from the tribe of Reuven, David Haruveni, And he tells a, a fantastic story of how he got across this river and that he's here to herald the coming of the Messiah. And he travels throughout Europe and he is welcomed by Jewish communities he given great honor he even gets an audience with the Pope in Rome the Pope interviews him and the Jews are uh, packing their bags they're ready to go Uh, but then he is uh, arrested by uh, one of the Spanish noblemen he overplayed his hand all all uh, false messiahs overplay their hand and he is arrested and he dies in prison so that's the end of that chapter but messianism doesn't die with him and we have uh, the champion false messiah Shavzai in the 17th century a Jew from Turkey, from Smyrna who says he's the messiah and he had a great publicist. Every messiah needs public relations. You need an advertising agency. So the Christian world had Paul, who was a great publicist. Shavzai uh, Tzvi had a man called Nathan of Gaza, Natan Azati. And he publicized him throughout the Jewish world and he had great success. It's estimated that a third of the Jewish people believed in him. Great rabbis believed in him. And then at the end, he converted to Islam. So uh, this caused great divisions within the Jewish people. Uh, Because then it became a question of uh, backlash, uh, you know, and getting even and putting people into uh, excommunication. So it was a uh, terrible time. And then there developed an idea amongst the Protestants, not amongst the Catholics. The Catholics held, Catholic theology holds that the Jews are to be eternally punished for not accepting Christianity. Therefore they have to stay in exile forever. And they can never have a national state. Uh, when Theodore, you have to understand all of this because it explains a lot of what goes on now. We know, no, one, uh, no one talks in these terms, but uh, this is what underlies it. Uh, when Herzl uh, wanted to get the Zionist movement started, he went to see the Pope in Rome, Pope Leo. And he wanted the Pope, naively, he wanted the Pope to support the idea. And the Pope told them that the only solution to the Jewish problem is that all the Jews should convert to Christianity. And therefore, uh, a Jewish national state or the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is a theological problem to the Catholic Church. It's a good kasha. Now, the Protestants were split. There was a large section of the Protestant movement that agreed with the Catholics but there was a a substantial portion of the Protestant movement that said no that the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is a condition precedent to the Christian Messiah's return in other words we should support it because by supporting it we bring closer the second coming and that's the origin of Uh, Christian Zionism in the 19th century uh, and it's pretty much the origin of the support of the state of Israel by the fundamentalist Christian organizations in the United States and by the money they pour into the country so even though they don't officially convert anyone or proselytize But the reason for it is because of the fact that this is going to help create uh, the situation that all Christians are waiting for, which is the second return of their Messiah. Uh, So uh, this uh, difference uh, affects the Jews and affects us today. It affects us in a great way. And there's, as usual, different opinions amongst the Jewish people. Uh, regarding uh, for instance accepting uh, money uh, but they support so many good social causes here in Israel so many people benefit from it so many institutions and as I mentioned before money is a very very difficult thing to deal with to be able to say I'm principal I'm I'm going to offer you a million dollars etc no strings attached, but the big string that's attached is uh, the narrative that is involved in this. Now in the Protestant movement, uh, for instance, uh, let's take the pilgrims that came to the United States, just recovering from our Turkey Uh, the pilgrims, there was a vote on the Mayflower, (coughs) The pilgrims felt that they are coming to a brand new country. They didn't take into account that the people who lived here had any uh, right to live here. And uh, so they took a vote in this new country. What language should be the official language of the new country? So two languages were proposed, English and Hebrew. And Hebrew lost by a few votes it's remarkable to think had Hebrew won because then all of our yeshiva students would speak Hebrew (laughs) but uh, the pilgrims uh, on one hand uh, knew Hebrew studied the Bible respected Jewish heritage but on the other hand were very bigoted against Jews. There were only certain colonies in the original colonies of the United States where Jews uh, were, so to speak, accepted. Roger Williams in Rhode Island and the southern colonies where the Jews came from the West Indies. But Massachusetts and uh, Vermont, etc., they were uh, bastions of anti-Jewish thought, even though, as I mentioned before, they loved Hebrew but not the Hebrews, and this uh, idea that existed uh, played a great role in the relations. There was a Jew by the name of Menashe ben Yisroel. Menashe ben Yisroel was a rabbi in Amsterdam in the 17th century. He was a great Talmudic scholar. He was born in uh, Portugal to a Morano family, and he was raised as a Christian. And the family later escaped to Amsterdam. Amsterdam was the refuge for the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. He escaped there, and there he received his Jewish knowledge and his rabbinic training, and he became a rabbi, and a very famous rabbi, Menashe Ben Yisrael. He travels to England and appears before Parliament and the court of the king to ask that England allow Jews legally to be readmitted to the country. And his main argument was that according to Protestant theology, before the Christian Messiah can come again, uh, the Jews have to be scattered all over the world. And if they're not in England, they're not scattered all over the world. So, in effect, you're holding up the coming of the second, uh, of the the second coming of the Messiah, and therefore you have to uh, now to to have such a convoluted idea. But it uh, it had, so to speak, a basis because that's how they saw the world, and because of that, therefore. The Jews in Western Europe began to change. They began to uh, see the coming of the Protestant uh, Reformation and uh, the science and everything as, uh, so to speak, loosening the bonds that they had to Jewish tradition. And that would uh, take place. We're going to talk about it in the next lecture. Uh, when the enlightenment came uh, so then uh, reform came so reform is the Jewish Protestantism it's the same rebellion maybe it has different causes and maybe it uh, reflects itself in a different fashion but basically it is the same thing it's uh, Luther's rebellion against the church is Geiger's rebellion against traditional Judaism. And that's what I meant when I said that whatever happens in the non-Jewish world happens in the Jewish world as well. Two more points uh, and then we'll be done with this brilliant lecture. One is that uh, the uh, Protestant Reformation uh, brought about uh, capitalism in a great extent. There's a famous theory, uh, many books have been written upon it and courses in in university to tie the rise of capitalism to the rise of the Protestant movement. But there's no question that the Protestant movement, the Roman Catholic Church was bound by strictures which uh, made capitalism uh, difficult. Laws of usury, uh, questions of credit, and the control of the church. The church wanted to control all money also. Anytime you have uh, government uh, control all money, so you have a stagnant economy. The rise of free capitalism uh, coincided with the fact that England and uh, other countries in Europe, Germany, which were the main economies... Uh, were Protestant, and uh, they allowed for uh, what later would be the Industrial Revolution, the mercantile system, all of these ideas upon which uh, modern civilization is based, uh, all because of the fact that uh, the Reformation had loosened the hold of the Church on uh, financial transactions it also gave Jews an opportunity Uh, Jews uh, functioned very well in the capitalist society because of the fact that uh, it allowed for service industries it allowed for new products it allowed for competition all of which uh, did not exist uh, before and in an agricultural society it certainly did not exist so therefore uh, this rise of Protestantism, the rise of uh, the mercantile system and of uh, modern economies uh, had a great effect on uh, the Jewish world and how Jews dealt with it. And it uh, remained until today, I mean, the banking system, uh, the Rothschilds, uh, and the other uh, Jewish uh, moguls who uh, really transformed Europe, uh, built its railroads, uh, financed all of its problems. Uh, that was a product of the fact that, under the Protestant movement, uh, there was room for such things to happen. The second thing was the fact that the uh, the era of exploration existed. The world now was a much bigger place. You could go places and uh, the immigration to uh, the American continent was one thing, but the Jews participated in it almost from the beginning. The Jews were always looking for a new country, new frontier, somewhere new, because the old had been so repressive. And uh, that's uh, Jews came to Africa and they came to Asia. Uh, All of a sudden uh, uh, it, it was a much bigger world uh, than ever existed for Jews in the earliest in the earlier parts of the uh, of this age. and the Protestant, uh, especially the English, the Catholics were with Spain, uh, those two countries uh, were the engine of exploration. and exploration always was, A positive thing for Jews. It's hard for us to imagine what the Jewish world would look like uh, without the ability to immigrate to North America in the 19th century or to other parts of the world. Uh, All of the Jewish communities that were established why should Jews go to Argentina? Why should Jews go to uh, Johannesburg? Or why should Jews go to uh, other places, the faraway places? But now that exploration not only existed, but it was seen as a uh, very positive thing, it was seen as uh, advancing the cause of civilization, Jews uh, began to pack their backs and began to move. And that movement of Jews had turned out to be providential because uh, Poland and the uh, Baltic states and Germany uh, would become the graveyard of Jewry. And the Jews had not moved. Uh, So then if there would not have been these uh, conditions so then it's hard to imagine how we would have survived and all of this somehow, there's a guiding hand that pushes all of these events in the world and that we respond to them and because of that therefore uh, all of Jewish history, all of world history uh, is influenced uh, by these types of events and these types of conditions
0: you're listening to an encore presentation of a nine days format, JM in the AM, with me, Nachum Siegel, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Pretty amazing, huh? Rabbi Barrel Wine, he really is amazing. 1 800 499 W E I N for information about any of Rabbi Wine's lectures. 1 800 499 W E I N. And, uh, of course, you can uh, log on to rabbiwine.com. Rabbi Wein dot com uh, and get information that way as well. And I thank her by one. um we've we've now heard through the first couple of days of our nine days format, we've now heard uh, the entire part one of the two part series. it's it's two parts of Europe and the Jews. and part one is five lectures, part two is five lectures. We've done the five um, uh, lectures in part one. And now we just have to get to the lectures in part two, which we will do right after our news from Israel uh, later on. Also, we're going to interrupt by Wine a little later, as we've done uh, as we've done before um, in past years, uh, because I will be presenting my uh, father's eulogy, the Labba Rebbe, which was delivered on the third of Av. Today is the third of Av. Oh, there we go. Uh, delivered on the third of Av. Um, Delivered on the third of Av, five seven five four. Back in nineteen ninety four, it was the uh, it was the Shloshim observance of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in West Orange, New Jersey, hosted by Rabbi Herson, and. Um, And my father spoke and gave one of the most amazing biographical sketches of anybody that I've ever heard. Uh, it, it's really something. So that's coming up an hour from now. I hope you'll be tuned in. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world in the web at NachumSiegel.com. On the Siegel Network and, of course, on the beloved nsn app is there? i think this is the live feed i don't know things look a drop different here at golly i think this is the live feed and if it's not we'll know in about 20 seconds 67 degrees partly cloudy a high of 77 wow only 77 partly usually in nine days it's like 177 partly cloudy tonight low 68 tomorrow cloudy skies a high of 81 Yerushalayim at 94, heatwave in Jerusalem, we'll be there starting Wednesday next week. Uh, Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Misora they're at 58 degrees, and we're at 67 here in New York City, as we say good morning at JM in the AM. You know the lineup for the rest of this morning here, and um, we'll continue with our wine right after our news from Israel. Galait Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Wednesday follows next. We say Bokeh Tau from JMN.
2: Galait Sal Hashash Time, Kanehud Graf, Im Mashakorea Shav, Masper Har Habait, Hamas Korelif Ilav, Beshitre Yehuda Shomron, Lazet <laughs> Le Tahaluchot Mechaa, Beyom Shishia Karov, Hadivuach Sheldana Guter.
3: נו את חמאס בשטחים קוראת בקרזא לאנשיה ولאמה فلسطيني لاتت لأفGIN بالأمنف بشيشه كרוב لأخرد فيلات الصوراين. עוד נכתב בקרזא מופצת בהרשאות החברתיות כי בשל המשך האצדיים של ישראל במתח מרבית יש להעGIN ולהגיא לינקדות אחקוח אחקוחה בביטחון ישראליים. בתקראח היום קבאה בת מישפחת אירופית אליון כי רגון חמאס ישאיר בירשימות רגוניות טרור שלא יבשת.
2: מוקדם יותר נסע تركيا ארדوان תקף שובת ישראל ו ואמר... לא נסתפק בהסרת הגלעים. כתבנויותם לוי.
3: ארדואן אמר
4: לפני זמן קצר כי הסרת גלי המתחות שפגעו במוסלמים מהכניסות ליר הבית הייתה צעד
3: נכון, אך זה לא מספיק. כך דיווח העיתון הטורקי די ליסבך. זאת לאחר שאמש קרה למוסלמים בארצו וכל הרחבי העולם לעלות לירושלים וטען, ישראל מנסה לקחת את מסגד אל-אקצה מידי המוסלמים ביחסות של מאמצים
2: רוכב אופנוע בן 17 נהרג, לאחר שנפגע ממסעית ברחוב חלוצי התעשייה בחיפה. כתבנו גיא ורון מציין כי מותו של רוכב האופנוע נקבע במקום ובוחני תנועה נמצאים כעת בזירת התאונה. גבר בן 51 מושם בביצוע מעשה מגונה בנער בן 14 בפארק מים ימית 2000 בחולון. כתב אישום הוגש נגדו היום לבית המשפט המחוזי בתל אביב. הפרקליטות מבקשת להאריך את מעצרו עד תום ההליכים. <מח> חבר הכנסת יציק שמולי תוקפת הרב שמואל אליהו בעקבות דבריו בבוקר בגלץ, בהם קינה את אנשי הקהילה הלהטאבית חולים. הוא סוחח בגלצים עם יעל דן. <מח>
3: כל כך
4: חשוך וכל כך מפלא וגזעני כל כך נמוך ספק שהאיש הזה רוצה שישראל תהפוך להיות ואני חושב שהבן אדם החולה היחידי כאן זה הרב
2: תושב בת ים בחשד שהתעלל בכלב של חברו
5: כתבנו גלכן. בחשוד בשנות ה-30 לחייו נעצר לאחר שהוגשה תלונה במשטרה על התעללות אכזרית בכלב של שותפו לדירה. על פי החשד הוא שבר את רגלו של הכלב ופצר אותו פציות פנימיות קשות. הוא יובא היום להערכת מעצר בבית משפט השלום בתל אביב.
2: העיתונאי יגאל סרנה שפותר מהעיתון ידיעות אחרונות בעקבות הפסדו בתביעת הדיבה שיגישו נגדו רושם הממשלה נתניהו ורעייתו אומר לרינו צרור, מול העיתון נוני מוזס נאלץ לסיים את העסקתי למרות שלא רצה בכך.
4: אני לא חושב שנוני נפטר ממני בשמחה. אני בטוח שהוא נאלץ. לזה. האויב שלי זה לא נוני מוזס, האויב שלי וביבי נתניהו, ואני חושב שהוא סיטואציה שבה...
2: Gammol khazak kokakh JM in the AM. That's Galei Tzal here for us on a
0: Wednesday morning. Uh, We're continuing with our Barrel Wine. uh, Ready to start part two. Part one was five lectures in terms of Europe and the Jews, and now it is time for part two of the uh, lectures, uh, Europe and the Jews. This one is, uh, where are we? Here we go. This one is entitled, uh, this lecture is entitled, The Enlightenment, The Enlightenment. Rabbi Beryl Wine with us during our nine days format. By the way, Rabbi Wine is gonna join us Friday morning. Yeah, he will join us in the eight o'clock hour Friday morning. Here he is with the Enlightenment at JM in the AM. everyone, Uh, Shavua Tov.
1: Thank you for coming. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns uh, Europe and the Enlightenment and its effect upon the Jews. Uh, At the outset, I would say that if any of the topics that we have discussed They had an effect upon the Jews. None of them, perhaps with the exception of the Greeks, had the effect that the Enlightenment had and still has. The Enlightenment begins in the the 17th century, begins in England and it moves to France and then to Germany and to Central Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what later would be the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, but it uh, in its main form, never penetrated Eastern Europe until the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Now, the Enlightenment, uh, because of the uh, Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation, the Church was weakened. Not only would the Church was weakened; it made uh, many errors uh, in tactics and in strategy. And, uh, the trial of Galileo is a prime example of that. Uh, you cannot, uh, so to speak, uh, fight science. It's a great mistake, uh, that's made in our world too. The science is fact. The Torah it deals with fact, it deals with reality, it deals with truth. And because of that, therefore, Uh, the church rejected uh, much of the uh, science that was being discovered you're talking Galileo, Newton, you're talking a new era when uh, human civilization explored the past and it explored the natural world that we live in and it came to certain conclusions and uh, the church uh, always felt threatened by science and persecuted uh, those who uh, espoused it. But you cannot defeat ideas by putting people into prison or by executing them. And uh, most of the time ideas have to run their course and either they prove themselves valid or they'll disappear by themselves. So, uh, in the uh, 1600s, there arose a group of people, scholars, who looked at the world around us, and uh, they portrayed a natural world uh, that, so to speak, did away with the supernatural world. And since much of religion uh, was founded on the supernatural world, Uh, The Enlightenment brought about the rise of agnostics and atheists and eventually of anti-religious people. Not only that they were not religious, they felt that religion itself was a detriment to mankind. And uh, the Enlightenment... uh, Brought, brought new ideas. It brought ideas that the divine right of kings was gone. Until then, kings ruled because God wanted them to rule. And so to speak, in heaven they ordained that uh, this person should be the king and he should have the ultimate power over millions of people. And the Enlightenment said, uh, That's nonsense he was not ordained by heaven he was born uh, the son of a king and that's what made him a king and kings generally uh, why should they have power over other people and uh, it's a long progression of hundreds of years but the enlightenment fathered uh, democracy uh, that uh, it's no longer the rule of the elect few but it's rather the rule of the people so to speak which uh, has its own uh, detriments to it you know Winston Churchill famously said that democracy is a terrible form of government but he said it's the best one that we know of and there's a certain truth to that so the enlightenment brought that out the enlightenment also uh because of the oppression of the church uh, was driven towards tolerance of other faiths. Now this came about because of the Protestant Revolution and because the Protestants themselves were so split into so many different sects that somehow they, they were forced to tolerate each other. And eventually this idea of tolerance would extend to the Jews as well uh, for uh, a thousand years the Jews were not tolerated and Judaism was not recognized as anything but a devilish uh, negative faith but now uh, the Enlightenment uh, looked at it uh, in a different light, and they brought about uh, that uh, sooner or later, and we'll see uh, in in Germany mainly, but in France as well, and then later in England, and then in Austria, there were uh, edicts of tolerance, where uh, the government uh, agreed that Judaism uh, was a legitimate faith and that Jews had a right to practice that faith. Now, that's a great turning point in European history, and it continues until our time. Uh, I just uh, noticed, and my, my wife read to me an article from a Hebrew newspaper today, that the church uh, in the last month has said that... Uh, Jews don't have to convert to Christianity to obtain salvation. I mean, it's a revolution. It's, it's turning the church uh, and w- what was on its head. It's interesting that there are those that say that that's just a new form of anti-Semitism because they're not going to try and convert Jews, so therefore the Jews are going to go to hell, and that's, <laughs> that's their purpose, right? But I don't, I don't think that that is exactly what the Pope had in mind. This pope is an apocryphus anyway, so it doesn't <laughs> doesn't make much difference. And uh, the uh, the Enlightenment uh, uh, Enlightenment also brought a fascination with the Bible, because the the Church basically kept the Bible in the wraps. Nobody really knew it except the priest and the minister. And uh, people didn't have uh, biblical studies. And now, all of a sudden, there was a great interest in the Bible and a great interest in Hebrew languages. I pointed out last time that the, especially the Puritans and the pilgrims, the Quakers, etc., all studied Hebrew, spoke Hebrew, and Hebrew was recognized as. Uh, with Greek and Latin as part of a basic classical education that one would obtain in the university. But with the study of the Bible in, uh, after one or two centuries, because of the anti-religious bias of the Enlightenment, there arose something that was called biblical criticism biblical criticism posited that the, not only that the Bible was not divine but that it was written by committee over many many centuries in other words Moshe was not the author of the Torah uh, numerous people wrote the book of Yesshayohu etc etc and if you posit that then it uh, the Bible is not uh, not only not divine but it's, you know, it's a nice book but it's not, it doesn't have to be taken too seriously if it interferes with one's own value system. Now biblical criticism in our time has declined everywhere in the world except at the Hebrew University <laughs> uh, because it, it, it's a, again an idea that has run its course a famous incident with Ben-Gurion that he submitted uh, the uh, Khumash to uh, a computer that was programmed for biblical criticism. I don't know if it was a computer or the scholars they came up with an idea that there were 10 or 12 different authors based on the prose. So someone then submitted uh, uh, Ben-Gurion's Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel to the same group and it also came up that there were 10 or 12 different authors. But in any event uh, the biblical criticism was a great blow to religion and it was a great blow to Judaism per se because Judaism is founded on the Bible and it's founded on the divinity of the Bible once you take away the divinity of the Bible, so there's not going to be much left to Judaism, as uh, we'll see uh, further in this uh, talk. And uh, therefore, this part of the Enlightenment uh, proved very harmful to the Jewish people, and to, certainly to Judaism. On the other hand, because of the Enlightenment, uh, Jews felt that uh, they, they were not willing to simply take being persecuted lying down. They they protested for the first time, and the protests would take on many different colorations and many different strategies as how to avoid this persecution. Now. Uh, The uh, anti-religious nature of the Enlightenment uh, is very complicated. Uh, For instance, uh, most of the founding fathers of the United States uh, were agnostics, if not even atheists. Yet uh, they all spoke about God Uh, They put uh, God on the uh, currency. Uh, They were all very conversant with the Bible. So you had this uh, mixture of uh, traditional biblical heritage, and uh, mixed into it you had this stream of agnosticism, which, uh, therefore, in the Bill of Rights, freedom of religion. So freedom of religion really means freedom from religion. No government shall enact a law that touches upon religion. And many other ideas such as that, which became the basis certainly of American democracy, but of democracy throughout the world, are founded on these ideas. So the Enlightenment built up something called humanism. Humanism means that we're going to do what's good for human people. We don't need a Bible to tell us what is right or wrong. We don't need a Bible to tell us what is good or fair and what is unfair. We human beings can figure it out themselves. And as rational human beings We can certainly figure it out. So the moral code, therefore, would not be a religious code. It would be a code that society somehow agrees with. And uh, as we have seen the difference uh, over the past 50 years in Western society and Western civilization regarding what is an accepted moral code, that is a continuation of the ideas of the Enlightenment. That there is no fixed moral code, there's a human code. And what human beings want to do, what they say is all right, and all right, so so that, uh, so to speak, takes precedence over anything else. And uh, that is how societies be configured and created. Uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment uh, spawned revolutions, especially against kings. Uh, eventually, the Enlightenment made England a constitutional monarchy where the king or queen is not all powerful, it's uh, subject to parliament. Every year, the queen uh, reads a message that's prepared for her by uh, David Cameron. She's just a mouthpiece. And uh, so they. Uh, English have held on to the royal house because somehow it does something for them. But uh, in France, uh, it was the Enlightenment people like Rousseau and others uh, who rebelled against the church and rebelled against the king and violently did so. And uh, France still today is divided between, uh, so to speak, the clericalists, the ones who have a loyalty to the church, and uh, this, the government the strictly atheistic, anti-the uh, uh, the French Revolution, uh, imposed terrible, terrible uh, atrocities on the church, and on priests and nuns, etc. And it gave rise to Napoleon, now, Napoleon has a great effect on the Jews, not only the pastry, but the uh, <laughs> the person himself. And Napoleon looked at the Jews and he said, we have to solve the Jewish problem. He's the first one that addresses it in that fashion. There's a Jewish problem. What's the problem? It's what Homan said. There is a strange nation, a foreign alien population that they somehow they don't do they don't feel themselves part of the country. They don't feel themselves part of the society. Homan said they don't listen to our laws. So what are we going to do with them? So for a long period of time, Human's solution was adopted by the rest of the world as well, that what we're going to do with them is we're going to destroy them. That's the way to solve the Jewish problem. So even though mighty efforts were expended in destroying the Jewish people, they never somehow quite did it. There always were Jews around. So Napoleon looked at it, and he said, no, that's not what to do. Napoleon is the heir to the French Revolution, even though he's the dictator, the emperor. So even though they got rid of Louis, uh, Napoleon is the next Louis. And uh, he's a master uh, military leader. France is the strongest power in Europe, and he has great success He's the master, almost, of all of Europe, with the exception of England and Prussia. And uh, he tries to invade Russia, and he he burns down Moscow. He was he got farther than Hitler did, but eventually Russia is too big to swallow, too large, too, too populous. The weather too bad. But in 1809, he has this idea that he's going to solve the Jewish problem. How is he going to solve the Jewish problem? He's going to construct the Sanhedrin. He's going to construct a group of rabbis. Now, he didn't know that when you have a group of rabbis together, very little is going to be accomplished. (laughs) But he, and to make it like the Sanhedrin, he's got 70 rabbis. And he's got all sorts of rabbis. And he submits a, a list of questions to the Sanhedrin. And he is certain that the Sanhedrin will answer the questions the way he wants them answered and that that will solve the Jewish problem because the questions will do away with religion. There will be only civil divorce. Only the laws of France will apply. In other words, the Jewish problem will will be solved by the fact that Judaism will disappear. And it will disappear because the rabbis will make it disappear, which is a theory that bears uh, investigation. The uh, head uh, of the Sanhedrin was a great Talmud Chacham, uh, Rav David Zinzheim, uh, was a Rav in Alsace. We have a very famous sefer of his, Yad David so uh, what happened is the son had been equivocated yes, no, maybe But that, that was the answer the answer, the answer and I always knew that I was in the, when in the yeshiva if, they, if you went for a bechina you went for an exam then the exams were all oral which is in my opinion a poor system but in any event anything the Rebbe asked you the answer was it depends <laughs> Ninety percent of the time you were right. <laughs> because uh, if you study Gomorrah, then it depends. <laughs> so that's how they answered him., yeah, it depends. It could be. Maybe we'll see. you know, He, he found it to be uh, a very, very empty uh, accomplishment, but he came to the idea that he was going to impose Western culture, which then meant the Enlightenment, as far as France was concerned, on the Jews, and that meant destroying traditional Judaism. Now, there's a famous uh, dispute between two great Hasidic Rebbes. Napoleon in 1812 comes to Poland and to Russia. And there he oh, he comes to the heartland of Jewry. And he promised the Jews freedom, which they did not have in Poland and in Russia. Under the Tsar they were impoverished and persecuted. And he said, I'm going to take care of all of that. You have equal rights. You be citizens. You'll be able to own land. You'll be able to vote. Everything, you know. I'm going to free you from your shacks. So then there were Hasidic Rebbeim who said, we should support Napoleon. <coughs> the Jews should support Napoleon because he promises to uh, free us from the oppression that we are suffering from. And the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, Ripshneir Zalman, uh, he said, no, we have to oppose Napoleon. He said, as bad as Tsar is, he says, but if Napoleon wins, uh, Judaism will disappear. And therefore, uh, for the sake of Judaism, not for the sake of Jews, uh, we will support the Tsar over Napoleon. And the truth of the matter is that most of the rabbis agreed with the uh, idea that they would oppose Napoleon, because they were afraid of what uh, his program would bring. Now, what happened was that in 1815, Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, and that was the end of Napoleon. But it was not the end of the Enlightenment, and not the end of the ideas that were brought. And uh, in the 1700s, for the first time, the Jews in Germany... Now, Germany was not a united country. Germany was made up of uh, over a hundred different little uh, municipalities, duchies, uh, you know, ruled by noblemen, etc. Oh, Bismarck is the one that united Germany and turned it into a monster. So, uh, in parts of Germany, especially in Prussia... Now, Prussia was the easternmost province in Germany, but it was the most enlightened province in Germany.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of a nine-days format, J.M. and the A.M., with me, Nachum Siegel, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. J.M. and the A.M. will, of course, continue with Heribera Wine and the uh, lecture on the Enlightenment coming up here at J.M. and the A.M. And I thank Rabbi Wine, of course. His uh, lectures are remarkable. You can uh, you can find them all at 1 800 499 W E I N. 1 800, excuse me, 499 W E I N and RabbiWine.com. W E I N Wein, dot com. It's Wednesday, on this 26th of July, 3rd of Av. Happy birthday to those celebrating birthdays today. 67 degrees, partly cloudy, a high of 77 tonight. Only 77? Wow. Partly cloudy tonight, low 68. Tomorrow, cloudy, a high 81. Yerushalayim will be next week. They're at 94 right now. Wow. Up in Guilford, New York, 58 degrees. That's our friends at Camp Misora, And, uh, boy, it must be. Oh, 58 not that bad. And here in uh, New York City, 67. Uh, the Tisha B'av program has been announced for um, uh, Brooklyn, New York. This is the annual event that attracts a whole host of amazing speakers. Um. Each and every year. And this year is no exception. Uh, they'll Davin Mariv, Monday night, starting at 9 p.m. with Eicha and Kinnis, of course. Rabbi Chaim or Rabbi David Goldwasser, our very own Rabbi Goldwasser, will be uh, will be taking care of that. Um, they'll be speaking that night. Shacharis at 8 a.m. at 9 o'clock on Tuesday. Rabbi Ephraim Levine, Rabbi Tzvi Mordechai Feldheim, Rabbi Noach or Rabbi Yosef Wiener, Rabbi Shai Tahan, Rabbi Daniel Gladstein, or Nussan Sherman, or um, Moshe Tov Yalif, Rabbi Fischel shachter they'll all be part of it, uh, plus, of course, two Minchem and Yanim, uh, one at 2 p.m. and one at um, at 6.50 and Mariv at 8.40 p.m. It's all at the Ocean Parkway Jewish Center, 550 Ocean Parkway between 18th Avenue and Ditmas for information, 718-998-5822. Seven one eight nine nine eight five eight two two. Don't forget to wrap up Tish above with us at the Nachum Siegel Network Project Inspire and NSN presents the end of Tish above program, the missing link, hosted by Charlie Harari. That's going to be happening on Tish above itself uh, during the last two hours of the fast. So join for that. Uh, reminder that hidden. Hidden is being shown tonight in Borough Park to the ladies on a Terrace Golda, 1362 50th Street at 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. To the men at Lipschitz Hall, 5014th Avenue, tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, and then a reminder in Teenek at Congregation B'nai Yashurin on West Englewood Avenue this coming Saturday night at 10 p.m. Hidden is that brand-new, incredible documentary from Project Witness. Go to projectwitness.org or dial 718-WITNESS again. That's 718-WITNESS for information on that. Uh, What else do we have for you? Tomorrow's the bake sale, the bake sale to um, support the Lone Soldier Center. That's happening tomorrow, 10 a.m. and Friday, 10 a.m. at Breezy's 572 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, supporting the Lone Soldier Center in memory of Shlomo Rindenau. Everyone should try their best to get there Thursday or Friday. Rabbi Wine joins us Friday. Sunday he'll be at the uh, Congregation Beth Abraham in Bergenfield. The topic is Destruction and Redemption, the month of Av and our world. Rabbi Wine will be there uh, at the shul on Sunday night. Tisha B'Av service at the Isaiah Peace Wall for the 40th, annual, uh, 40th consecutive year, led by Rabbi Avi Weiss, coordinated by Amcha, Phone number 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. Bring your Taliesin villain, 2 p.m., Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd and 1st. 43rd and 1st, New York City. Bring your fill in Tisha B'Av, Tuesday, 2 p.m. If you work in Manhattan and you're working on Tisha B'Av, use the opportunity during lunch hour to go davin Mincha and join in a show of solidarity for Jews around the world. Uh, it'll be much appreciated, that's for sure. All right, so there you go. Some of the things that are happening, some of the things that are going on as uh, we continue through our community calendar. Rabbi David Goldwasser, oh, and a reminder that um, my father's eulogy of the Labavitcher Rebbe is coming up at 8 o'clock this morning here at JM the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, are of Zebnerbos of Alevi, Esther of Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk.
5: Good morning. We say in Tehillim, Mizmar Le'asaf, a song to Asaf. Rashi notes it would have been perhaps more appropriate to begin Kina Le'asaf, a dirge for Asaf, as this chapter mostly describes the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Rashi explains that Asaf sang because Hashem in His mercy Poured his wrath on the stones and wood and not on Klal Yisroel. Rashi also offers an explanation in Shmos. Alep kudea mishkan mishkano edus. The word mishkan is repeated twice. This alludes to the fact that the destruction of each of the two temples was collateral for the sins of the Jewish nation. In a similar vein, the Sefer Menachem Tzion states that the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash is because Klael Yisroel was saved from total annihilation. This is an expression of our Hakara Satov or our gratitude. The Dubno Magid presents an interesting situation to illustrate the appropriate mindset that is demanded because of the Beis Hamikdash and its destruction. A woman who hadn't had any children for many years finally was pregnant when it was time for her to give birth however the doctor told her it would be impossible to ensure the life of both mother and child and therefore he recommended terminating the pregnancy in order to save the mother's life the mother said I have no desire for life if you choose to do that it would be better that I die and that my child should live and so the child was born and the woman passed on. When the boy grew older, he was taken to the gravesite on the day of the yardside of his mother in order to say Kaddish. Those in attendance noted that the boy was neither contemplative nor was he serious. He seemed rather lighthearted and irreverent. The people who had accompanied this young boy explained to him that his mother had given up her own life for his and in fact, deserved a lot more from him. The son was overwhelmed because he was unaware of the true circumstances of his birth. So it is with us. Can we possibly say that we are like that young boy who didn't realize what his mother had done for him? Do we mourn over the loss of the Hamikdash? Do we say Kaddish for the Hamikdash with reverence, being cognizant of the immensity of the loss we have suffered, acknowledging the kapara that we attained as a result? Or is there an air of levity and diversion, something that takes us away from our mourning over the loss of the Beis Hamikdash? It's during these days that we remember the Chazal, kolomisav whoever properly mourns over Yerushalayim in the Beis Hamikdash will merit to see its rebuilding speedily in our days. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
0: J.M. and the A.M., thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. Um, We are continuing with the lecture. And again, a reminder, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe delivered the third of Av in 1994 during the Shloshim observance is uh, going to be coming up. Uh, We are going to try to reach the conclusion first. I don't know if we'll get to the conclusion. Uh, but we'll get to as much of possible, as possible on the um on the lecture of the enlightenment the enlightenment right beryl wine on the enlightenment he continues at jm in the am
1: a, different type of person for he was a, a classical music composer uh, some of his symphonies are still performed until today he was a great warrior lead, lead, leader of an army and even though he himself did not like Jews uh, he tolerated them and he allowed them rights especially rights to be able to go for a higher education now that was the uh, great contribution of the enlightenment to Jewish life because until then no Jew could go to university without converting to Christianity and the If you didn't go to university, your options in life were very limited. Much more limited than they are today. Today, you can still start up a company without going to university. And having a college degree does not quite guarantee you success in life. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, admittance to university, that was your ticket your ticket to success, your ticket to get out of the ghetto, your ticket to move. Now, in, uh, in Prussia, Jews started to go to universities. And that's the story of Moses Mendelssohn, who uh, was a, uh, a great uh, Jewish scholar and uh, who became a philosopher, a well-known philosopher. And uh, he had a connection uh, to the uh, court of Frederick the Great. He knew his son. And uh, because of all of these things, uh, the Jews now uh, became, if not full-fledged citizens, but they became part of German society. And because they became part of German society... Mendelssohn, for instance, uh, translated the Hebrew Bible into German. His purpose was not to give a Bible to the Germans. His purpose was to teach German to the Jews. Because the only way he felt that the Jews in Germany would ever be able to amount to anything was they had to speak German. They couldn't speak that gibberish Yiddish. And you have to be able to read German and write German, Mendelssohn himself already, uh, would be a victim of the tolerance, a victim of the times, because uh, his four of his six children converted to Christianity and all of his grandchildren were non-Jewish, including the composer Felix Mendelssohn. Uh, but uh, the Nazis wouldn't play Mendelssohn's works anyway. Now, uh, in Germany, because of the fact that the Enlightenment was so strong there and it took on such uh, opportunities for Jews, uh, there arose the Reform Movement. The Reform Movement adopted the ideas of the Enlightenment, of humanism. They were not atheists, but they said the Bible is not divine. Uh, they uh, believed in biblical criticism and they said that uh, in the famous phrase we are good Germans of the Mosaic persuasion we're going to be just like the Germans and in fact the reformed temples in the 19th century in Germany were carbon copies of the Lutheran church it's interesting that the church had men and women sit separately So the Reformed temples had men and women sit separately. It came to America where men and women sat together in the church, so then uh, mixed seating uh, became uh, the norm. Now, reform uh, became radical because of their drive to be accepted into German society and because of the ideas of the Enlightenment. So therefore uh, Hebrew was uh, completely discarded and it was all in German. Uh, No mention of Zion or Jerusalem appeared in the prayers any longer because we're in Germany. We're good Germans. We're going to stay in Germany. The famous slogan, Berlin is our Jerusalem. Who who wants to go? Who who has any ambition to go to a... uh, Distant uh, desert country, Uh, that's not our home, that's all in the past. We're not going to let it happen. And reform was very, very powerful in Germany. Probably uh, 80 to 90 percent of German Jews were reformed. The Orthodox communities were very small and they were mainly rural. I mean, uh, the great Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch in Frankfurt, so his and had only a few hundred families at its height, reform swept the board. And that was because of the ideas of the Enlightenment. One of the ideas of the Enlightenment that most appealed to Jews was that the Enlightenment said the world is getting, civilization is getting better and better. In other words, the Middle Ages was terrible. All those wars were terrible, but now that the Enlightenment, the ideas of the Enlightenment are coming into play, uh, then uh, the world is getting better and better. Now, part of it is true, it was getting better and better because of the advance of technology and some advance in medicine, though the major advances in medicine would uh, await uh, the last 50, 60 years of ours but uh, it was getting better and better and so who doesn't want it to get better and better? Uh, No one saw the 20th century in the 18th or 19th century. No one imagined that there would be a century where uh, uh, 150 million people would be destroyed by government and war and that uh, today We have severe doubts whether the world is getting better and better. But part of the Enlightenment was that it's getting better and better. And uh, the American Revolution uh, made a great effect because the American Revolution was based on Enlightenment ideals and ideas. And the success in breaking away from Britain, from England, and conquering a continent uh, was a great boon uh, to enlightenment ideas another point that the enlightenment is the father of uh, if you take the ideas of humanism and you take religion out of the equation completely you come to an understanding of what Marx wanted to do what his program was In the middle of the 1800s, you have this Jewish apostate Marx, Karl Marx, who was a German, and he uh, came up with a theory of uh, history in which uh, there is always a clash of classes and of different economic systems, and that the... uh, the world came now into the capitalist system, but the capitalist system would fail and fall, and then uh, this idea of his, of the workers of the world would unite and own uh, all the property and we would have a utopia. Uh, This idea was a product of the Enlightenment. It's an extension of the Enlightenment. It's the idea that the We can figure out history, since there's no God in history. There are no supernatural forces. It's all rational. So let's examine it. We can figure it out. We can devise a program that will work. And that's what he tried to do. He wrote a great uh, tome called uh, Das Kapital, which uh, almost no human being has ever read in its entirety. Uh, But he and Frederick Engels published a little pamphlet called the Communist Manifesto, which, when I went to college, uh, was required reading. Maybe it still is today, and uh, in it he portrays this uh, utopian world, but not only based on no religion, based on anti-religion. His famous statement was religion is the opiate of the masses. By that he meant that if a person is, God forbid, sick or in pain, so then we give the person opium. So the person doesn't feel sick or in pain. But in reality, the person has got the disease, and the disease will destroy that person. So he said the same thing about religion. Religion is an opium as long as people believe in God, so they accept the fact that the the boss is cruel, they they accept the fact that the rich persecute them and uh, take advantage of them, etc., etc. We get rid of religion, the people won't take it anymore. They'll revolt. And when they revolt, so then that's when the great new world is going to come. That idea would have uh, an enormous effect on the Jewish people perhaps more on the Jewish people than on anybody else in the world because Marxism uh, still exists still drives a great section of the Jewish people and uh, its ideas uh, have not yet fallen away even when the Soviet Union fell away as it did now uh, the uh, what happened now is that uh, if uh, Prussia has enlightenment, next door to Prussia is Lithuania. Uh, my father was born in a village and my family came from a village that was 18 kilometers from the Prussian border. So uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment start to filter into Eastern Europe. And Napoleon was driven out, but his ideas were not driven out. And uh, so, slowly, the reform does not take hold in Eastern Europe for various reasons. Uh, the main reason is because uh, in Germany, I, th- I mean, and I think so. And I'm never wrong. So in uh, in Germany, you know, uh, your neighbor was a doctor, a musician, a professor, you know, it was cultured, civilized. There was order in the streets. So you wanted to be a German. In Poland or in Lithuania, your neighbor was alcoholic, an abuser, illiterate. Who wanted to be your neighbor? And therefore, uh, to create reform, to imitate uh, the, uh, the church in Poland, or to imitate the church in Lithuania, was not an attractive option at all. But there arose this idea of the Haskalah, of the Jewish Enlightenment. In other words, taking the ideals of the Enlightenment, and applying them to the Jewish people. So the first thing we have to do, I mentioned again, is biblical criticism. We have to knock out the Bible. But on the other hand, we want to enhance the Hebrew language, which is based on the Bible. There are a lot of contradictions. Our people are pretty schizophrenic. Uh, So uh, there arose different forms of Haskalah, So there was a Hebrew Haskalah, the revival of the Hebrew language. In Europe, they did not use Hebrew as a spoken language. The Sfardim did. In all the countries of the Near East, the Jews were able to speak Hebrew, especially Hebrew amongst themselves. Arabic was the lingua franca, but they spoke Hebrew. They knew Hebrew. The Ashkenazim did not the Ashkenazim spoke Yiddish. Yiddish was a lingua franca. Hebrew was reserved for the synagogue. Now came this idea of the Haskalah, that we're going to make Hebrew a living language. We're going to write poetry in Hebrew. We're going to write plays in Hebrew. We're going to develop Hebrew as a language. And uh, this had a great effect, uh, not only on uh, the, uh, those who followed the Haskalah, but even on religious Jewry. Uh, the Nitziv of Haloshin, for instance, the great Hashiva of Haloshin, uh, would only read Hebrew newspapers on Shabbat. He would not read anything that was not Hebrew except on Shabbat. And there were Jews that only spoke Hebrew on Shabbat. And so you had slowly the beginning of a revival of the Hebrew language as being a spoken language and as a literary language. And this was especially true in the yeshiva system. uh, In the 1800s when the yeshivas were formed, Valoshin, especially the mother of the yeshivas. So in the yeshiva, the yeshiva was the only ball game in town. If you had a good mind and you wanted to have intellectual challenge, so to speak, then you went to yeshiva. Because you couldn't go to the university because I, to go to the university in Lithuania or Poland or Russia meant that you had to convert. So the only ball game in town was the yeshiva. And therefore, people came to the yeshiva who were intellectually stimulated, but they didn't necessarily believe in anything. And the struggle of the yeshivas uh, throughout the 19th century in Eastern Europe was how to deal with these uh, infiltrators, so to speak. So, for instance, Bialik was a student in Valoshan and uh, many others. Uh, there's a book, uh, it was published here by a professor, Emanuel Itkis, in the Hebrew University, a book of uh, memoirs about Valojin, written by all the non-religious who went to Valojin. And they write about it so beautifully and with such great nostalgia, but uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> had nothing to do with their lives or beliefs. So you have uh, this idea of the Haskalah and I want to tell you how that people don't my grandchildren don't believe me but uh, when I grew up in Chicago so there were great Lithuanian rabbis I mean real you know great Chachomim great scholars, extraordinary people. almost all of them, in their Shabbos sermon would quote Bialik. You couldn't make a speech if you didn't quote Bialik because that meant you were a peasant. And if you will look at the uh, uh, commentaries to Chumash that are written in the 19th century by the great rabbis, Rameer Simcha, Baramalbim, the Ksav HaKabola, Medvish Vamas, etc., you will see a completely different tone and a completely different use of resources and of insights than ever existed before because they were all influenced by the fact that they are writing to an audience now that is influenced by the Enlightenment. And so to speak, uh, they have to deal with it, not only deal with it, they have to appear as though they are also enlightened because otherwise they would not have an audience the audience they wanted to reach were the youth and the youth were sold on the Haskalah the same thing in Germany if you read Hirsch Hirsch is a very complicated complex uh, issue in the Jewish world today because we don't know what to do with him he does not fit the uh, current political correctness on the other hand he has to fit it about uh if you read Hirsch's commentary to uh, Humish which he wrote in German it's been translated into hebrew it's been translated into english but the commentary is in german which itself is an enormous departure i mean rashi uh rashi was not uh, rashi uses old french when he has to to you uh, to uh, particularly identify a word, but his commentary is not in Old French. And here, uh, and it's uh, he says things there that, uh, you know, uh, that show the influence. Now, he's bitterly anti-reform, but the ideas of the Haskalah have affected him, as they have affected the Jewish world generally. And then you had uh, a Haskalah that was based on Russian. Jews uh, felt that, uh, which was a copy of what was happening in Germany, that Russia is going to be our motherland, and that somehow the tsar will come to his senses and be nice to us, and that uh, therefore uh, you have to read Russian, you have to know Russian, And if you don't know, at least you have to read. So there's so many Yiddish translations of Russian novels and Russian books. So all of that had an effect. Now we're going to get to the overlay of Marxism. Marxism struck deep roots with Eastern European Jewry. Now, because... Uh, many of the ideas of Marxism are, so to speak, Jewish ideas. You have to be fair to the worker. You can't exploit the worker. The rich are not entitled to dominate everything. We want to have a world of peace. We want to have that everybody... So all of these ideas... Uh, had, so to speak, a Jewish basis to it. It resonated in the minds and hearts of Jews. And Marx proposed a program. See, the, the Jews said, the program is, we're going to wait for Mashiach. We're not going to do anything. That was Judaism 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th. Some people, even 21st century we're not doing anything. We're passive. God will come. He'll take us. He'll redeem us. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Don't worry. That's not our job. Mark said, no, what are you talking about? We're going to do it. Comes the revolution.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of a nine days format, JM in the AM, with me, Nachum Siegel, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. J.M. in the A.M., it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, in the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Um, we want to play My Father's Eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which we do each year on the 3rd of Av, the day that he delivered it to Shloshim for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So what we'll do is, I know we scheduled it for 8 o'clock, so I apologize. We're going to just take a few minutes just to close out. By wine's lecture on the Enlightenment. As soon as it ends, we will go to my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on this Wednesday, nine days edition of JM in the AM.
1: We can create the perfect society. We don't have to wait. And to a great extent, uh, Marx is a uh, secular messiah. And these ideas, socialism and communism, uh, became... uh, the majority ideas of Eastern European Jewry and later on when Herzl will create the Zionist movement uh, so you have a marriage of the Zionist movement which is also religious in its essence Zion and Jerusalem with Marxism which also is Jewish in its essence so to speak and the uh, That's the story of the first uh, 60, 70 years of the Zionist enterprise here in the land of Israel, of the Kibbutzim, etc., the Mapai, the Istadrut, all of that. So uh, the Enlightenment did that. It it created these enormous forces within the Jewish world. The uh, tragedy is, that uh, all of these forces were aligned against traditional Judaism, against observance of commandments, against traditional Jewish life. Uh, They all felt that part of the rebellion was to throw off everything, not to keep any vestige of it. So you had the anomaly of uh, Hebrew speaking, the Bible knowing, Uh, anti-religious people who were determined to destroy the observance of Judaism in order to bring about this better, greater, new world that was supposed to happen and uh, with varying degrees of success uh, they achieved many of their goals much uh, much of what has happened to us Now, that's different than the assimilation, for instance, which exists in America today. That that assimilation is not based on any ideology. It's based on ignorance and on having a good time. And uh, the complete lack of any idea of identity, of self-pride. So therefore, you know, why not? That's a different, different type of enemy. That's a different type of problem that requires a different type of solution. But here we're talking about an ideology. We're talking about a strategy. We're talking about a vision that invaded the Jewish world. And that uh, vision uh, came to dominate much of the Jewish world. Now, the Holocaust would change all of this a little, and uh, Stalin would do his part, too. And uh, so, uh, in fact, sometimes change ideologies and change how the world looks at things as well. Now, eventually, these ideas of the Enlightenment... uh, created uh, within the Jewish people, within the religious world itself, uh, different factions. There are those that said, let's take the positive sides of the Enlightenment and incorporate them. Like secular studies, until, uh, until the 19th century to 20th century, Unless you went to university, no Jew had. Uh, you, when you went to Cheder, they weren't going to teach you two plus two. You went to Cheder; it was Brishus borough. But now we're going to have uh, we're going to have a combination. Uh, Hirsch did that in Frankfurt. He had what he called the Real Schule, and in the afternoon classes, which were German and which uh, were secular studies. Uh, the students sat without their heads covered, even, because that's the way it was in Germany. You know, the famous statement of Rabbi Sol Salanter, he said, uh, if a person goes bareheaded, he's not an apicoros. But he said, all apicoros and go bareheaded. So symbolism took on a role And you have that problem. You see what goes on here in Israel today. Secular studies, core curriculum. The the, uh, struggle that exists. It doesn't seem capable of being resolved. That's the question of the Enlightenment. Can you adopt some of the Enlightenment? Or by adopting some of the Enlightenment, eventually you'll adopt all of the Enlightenment. And that will lead to all sorts of disasters, religious disasters. So as I began at the beginning of this lecture, uh, the Enlightenment, is uh, that that contribution of Europe to the Jews has had the most effect, perhaps, much more of a greater effect than, for instance, Christian Europe had or Protestant Europe had because uh, that the Jews were able to deal with. That didn't appeal to them. But this uh, type of idea of an Enlightenment, of a rational world, that uh, did appeal to them and it did fuel them. The Enlightenment found its greatest foes in the Hasidic world. The Lithuanian world was uh, much more influenced by it. In the Hasidic world, there were pitched battles, physical battles, regarding the Enlightenment, and uh, because the Hasidic world is a supernatural world, not a rational world. And therefore, it naturally stands in complete opposition to all of the ideas of the Enlightenment and to its basic form. So uh, we're still living in the middle of it, we're still influenced by it. We'll have to wait and see how it turns out. But meanwhile, I hope to see you next week, and thank you for coming, and a Shavuot Tov.
0: J.M. in the AM with Rabbi Barrel Wine. The Enlightenment is, is the first lecture in a five-lecture series called Europe and the Jews Part 2. All right? That's how it works. And we'll do... We'll start the second lecture in that series coming up here at J.M. and the M. But first, uh, and I know I'm a drop behind schedule. I apologize for that. It's seven minutes after eight o'clock. We just wanted to conclude Rabbi Wine's lecture uh, first. I will um, play for you as we do every as we do every uh, third of Av, which is the day it was originally delivered. This um, uh, this. Um, Speech, This eulogy by my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, was delivered in New Jersey um, in a program that was under the uh, leadership of Rabbi Moshe Herson on the shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe back in 1994. And we play it each year, and um, it is one of the most amazing biographical sketches of anybody I've ever heard, if I say so myself in regard to my own father. So my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, and his eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, an amazing perspective biographically and historically. Here it is at JM in the AM.
4: This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says, Is (laughs) Is levadi <laughs> masachem Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues. So he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says the qualifications of leadership should be the following and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves men chachomim." wise man understanding man now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabenu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim, Chochmo, Nevonim, Bino, V'yiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Claudius Yisroel was given to the rabbi and he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had Yisrael, the entire people of Israel was his concern and a deep concern. Every corner in the world, no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified To reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurban, after the tragic holocaust that befell our people he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way. and at the same time he made Jews feel without any exception whoever they may have been that they are a part of this reconstruction he worried about every Jew wherever he was and he had a certain Devotion and dedication to Klau Yisrael. I used to sit and I had the great privilege and I don't pretend that I understood the Rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness. But at the same time in my own way I was privileged to spend a great deal of time. It is no secret. Many of you know it. I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting, The bell used to ring, and I tried to get up, because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, we are talking about the clout wegen Claza. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Claudius Sue. And I can go on and on about his great concerns nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism and the only underground movement that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga, and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover, beside being a devoted chosid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branova told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Rebbe, so people were very scared at the time, and the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia, and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And actually they accepted the rabbi's word and it calmed them down a little bit but then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently and he spent quite some time with him so he asked Gorbachev did you really when you came to power did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the rabbi had enough insight to predict that things will improve and I can testify it from another angle you remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers and the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rabbi that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rabbi, so a little time passed, and I was curious and I said to him, I hear rumors ...that you stopped Sharon from traveling on that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the Rabbi said the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel... And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go, says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I asked the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. (laughs) And he says to me the following, he says, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye and all I did was say, don't go. For me this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Branova meant. And this insight was used reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Israel. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life. Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate, believe it or not, I was young once. The youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight. One may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science or in military affairs, but the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience, the hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase in the life of Barat Yisroel. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Yisroel. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Aretz Yisrael. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years he had something to worry about, as we see it now. He talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach, and God forbid, for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it, but the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misilas nefesh of the shliefing in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago a Friday night who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night. The devotion. The discipline. Nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead he is suffering his rigor. Or a young man, many of you may know Glossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. he's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, want, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Leblay Braskin who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I say to him, excuse me for keeping you so late. So he says, what do you mean, excuse me? First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There, in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one, so we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish. I can tell you many stories but my time is limited I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70's when the Jewish community was in a turmoil and the Rebbe calmed them down and the Shlichim there did their job if there is a Seder in Himalaya who does it If a shoghate was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there, and they are still there. Yes, indeed, outreach to its maximum all part of the reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Miftsat Filim in the Six-Day War? And filling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he does Minche, or Mayriv, or Shachris, and if he comes in another part of the day, he says, stealing, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say, Shema Yisrael, Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, and other creativ- creativity. The rabbi was the first one on the American Jewish scene. Who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time. The rabbin never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you one of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you, marked the rest of my life. Particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day, I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere I was called and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report and again with lack of wisdom I said to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said the rabbis will listen. I said, the rabbi should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the rabbi looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, "Alafsegel, since when did you make a contract with the Rabbeinu Shleilom for a gringen life?" The Rabbi says to me, "Since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life?" And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the manighador, he will be the manighadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know, I'm as sure as I can be, that right now, as he stands before the Kisei Hakovot, he is doing everything he possibly can bring
0: about our ge'ulo be amen there it is that is uh, my father's eulogy of the labbavaturereba a brilliant biographical sketch if I say so myself and I see no reason why I can't uh, of the of one of the greatest figures in the recent Jewish history of course many would say the greatest person in Jewish history of the 20th century and um, That was delivered back uh, during the Shloshim, the third of Av, Shloshim observance in 1994 of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You're listening to an encore presentation of a nine-days format, J.M. in the AM, with me, Nachum Siegel, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Wednesday morning at J.M. in the AM at 25 minutes before 9 o'clock. Reminder on Tisha Tuesday. Isaiah Peace Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue. Bring your talus and tefillin for Mincha. Bring your talus and tefillin for Mincha, everybody. Again, that's, um, that's happening at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Bring your talus and Fillin. It is a uh, a golden opportunity, by the way for you to um, utilize your lunch hour if you're working in Manhattan on Tisha B'Av for uh, Mincha, and in this case at the Isaiah Wall. Show solidarity with Jews around the world by being there that day at 2 p.m. Uh, Rabbi Barrel Wine has been uh, brilliant, as usual. Not that he needs my uh, <laughs> not he needs my um, support on that. Um, and uh, he has been brilliant, and uh, we are now ready to start. We are now ready to start uh, the second lecture in his part two series of Europe and the Jews. We are ready for Europe and the Jews part two. This is the second of the five lectures in that series. And it is entitled. It is entitled Imperial Europe. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM and the AM.
1: concerns the uh, rise of imperialism in Europe and its effect upon the Jews. The uh, beginning of the story is naturally in the uh, six, 15th and 16th centuries when uh, the Spanish and Portuguese explorers left Europe and discovered uh, Africa, eventually... America, new uh, routes to Asia, the world shrank, just as in our time air travel has shrunken the world considerably. And uh, because of the fact that the explorers were in the main Christian, the Spanish and Portuguese were Roman Catholic, the English were Protestant mainly, but because of their religion, Uh, They uh, not only discovered, uh, but they also converted. Uh, They were bringing uh, good news to the unwashed, to those who didn't know better. And there was a sense of civilization, almost of noblesse oblige. The good people in the world had to somehow raise all the other people as well. If they didn't want to be raised, then they killed them. But their motives, so to speak, were noble. The other main motive, aside from, uh, and that's why you find many of the explorers were missionaries. Many of those who discovered uh, the inner recesses of Africa and America as well, uh, were missionaries. Priests who came to uh, create uh, bastions of Christianity among the heathens Uh, this always presented a problem to the Jews because the Jews are living it's the same idea that happened in the Crusades why should we have to travel uh, all the way to the Middle East to uh, Christianize the Muslims we got the Jews next door and they're not Christians so what should we do with them and that problem existed here as well because uh, the pressure for missionary activity was great it was very well financed not only by the church but by private organizations as well because after all you're doing a favor you're uh, creating uh, heaven for them and here in the middle you've got all these people who are not Christian and who are stubbornly not Christian, so what about them? So to a certain extent, the missionizing of the heathen exacerbated the Jewish problem in Europe. Because now the question arose, what do we do with the Jews? Now another reason that uh, really drove the establishment of colonies and of discovery was all of the legends about wealth, gold. There were cities of gold. Uh, There was uh, magical places where uh, gold was in the streets. And so therefore we had to find those places, travel there, and get the gold. And uh, in our uh, time, uh, there still are gold miners, but uh, the idea of a gold rush has existed in these previous centuries is practically unknown in our world today. But then it was very, very big. It was something that people wanted to do. You can make your fortune overnight. For instance, the great uh, gold rush in San Francisco and California in the 1800s brought about a sizable Jewish emigration to the west coast of the United States because there was gold. And the gold mines of South Africa and the diamond mines of South Africa attracted uh, tens of thousands of Lithuanian Jews to leave Lithuania and move to South Africa. Now the Jews were not the miners in the main, but they were the Suppliers, you know, if you wanted, you had to have food, you had to have equipment, you had to have mining uh, equipment, and the Jews were the ones that ran the stores and uh, were the suppliers in the gold rush. All gold rushes peter out. Some people make a fortune, some don't. It so happened in South Africa that there were Jews that made a fortune in the diamond business. Uh, Bonato, Oppenheimer, etc. and they really set the diamond business uh, for centuries, they ruled it uh, but the, it, it was an idea that somewhere there's a way overnight to become wealthy which is something that people always are looking for they're looking for the magic bullet they're looking for the, the one thing that'll do it And it's much easier than uh, working 50 years or just plodding along, making a living. And therefore, uh, the impetus for immigration, for Jews starting to leave Europe, which began already in the 1700s, Uh, the Jews went to the West Indies with the Spanish explorers on uh, Christopher Columbus's uh, expedition there were many Jews that were part of the expedition that's where the rumor began that Columbus himself was of Jewish descent which may very well be true and uh, since uh, Europe was not very friendly to Jews and since Jews were downtrodden and in the main poverty stricken in Europe, if there was a place in the world where one could, so to speak, make it quickly, easily, and have a better life, that certainly was attractive to Jews. And from there we have the legend uh, that uh, our uh, ancestors taught us that the streets of America are paved with gold. Or that you just have to, you know, you can pick it up. So America remained a land of opportunity, but it wasn't paved with gold. But the idea of people leaving, and you're going to have millions of Jews leaving Europe, a very great wave of immigration uh, that was driven by the fact that they uh, believed that somewhere the streets were paved with gold. And somewhere they would be able to make it. And uh, without uh, understanding the impetus for immigration, uh, then you don't really understand the whole story of why Jews left. Uh, We're talking about two and a half million Jews leaving uh, the Russian Empire alone in the 19th century. And that was a substantial number of people relative to the entire Jewish population. It was almost 25% of the world's Jewish population picked itself up and left. Now those that came to the land of Israel did not come for gold. There never were any rumors that the streets of Jerusalem were paved with gold. So that was uh, more or less an ideological and religious immigration. That's why people left. But all the other immigrations, South Africa, Australia, the United States, South America, the West Indies, the people left because of the fact that they felt that they would become wealthy. And if they didn't become wealthy, their children would become wealthy. And that that was something you couldn't dream of in uh, Eastern Europe. In Europe, generally, there were very few rich Jewish families. Uh, You know, you had the Rothschilds, etc., but uh, that was not representative of the mainstream of Jewish life. And that's why you have uh, Tevye singing, If I Were a Rich Man, because that was what was on their mind. And rich was always relative, Right. The rich man in the shtetl could be poverty-stricken, but he was a little less poverty-stricken than his neighbors, so he was the rich man. But wealth in terms as we know it today, uh that never existed before in the Jewish world. So uh, to a great extent today, our streets are uh, paved with gold. Now, the Spanish and Portuguese when they came to a place they said well now this belongs to Spain or this bego- belongs to Portugal and that's why in Brazil which is a country uh, enormous country with such a big population speaks Portuguese and South America speaks Spanish and America used to speak English <laughs> because of the fact that uh, That was the language of the explorers and the explorers imposed their language and culture and their religion on the places that they came to. Now, this gave rise to the age of imperialism, empire building, colonies. Uh, Europe had an idea, uh, aside from the religious angle, And the personal financial angle, they also had a national angle that colonies would create great wealth for the mother country. In most cases, this did not work out. The English were an exception. The English were able to make the colonies pay. And because they wanted to pay even more, that's why you had the American Revolution, the tea tax, etc., But they wanted the colonies not only to be self-supporting, but to bring income into the mother country. Now, in the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars, the competition between the great countries in Europe uh, lay in imperialism and in colonies. So first of all, uh, there are different uh, empires here. So you had, for instance, the creation of the German Empire. Germany was, uh, before Napoleon, was uh, a hundred different little governing bodies. Dukes, barons, little places. And now after uh, Prussia had uh, defeated, uh, together with England, had defeated Napoleon, uh, Prussia became the dominant power in Germany. And the Prussians eventually took over all of Germany and united it under Bismarck, under the Emperor Kaiser. Germany became the largest country in Europe in terms of population, in terms of the army, in terms of the economy. Germany was the engine. Now that caused its neighbors to be nervous and the two main neighbors, to the west was France and to the east was Russia. Poland didn't exist then. Poland was divided between Austria, Prussia and Russia and therefore there became a competition. Now this national competition not only was for power in Europe it was for power in the world. And so Germany wanted colonies, and Germany uh, claimed colonies in Central and East Africa, which brought them into competition and confrontation with England. England was the supreme imperial power. There was uh, a time uh, the sun never set on the Union Jack, England controlled uh, almost a a third of the world's surface and 25% of the world's population. Uh, and uh, the British imperialism, the Israeli was its great champion. Uh, and they were able to uh, take over India. India is an enormous subcontinent. Today it has almost a billion people. But then it was hundreds of millions of people. And you had like 10,000 Englishmen running... uh Six, seven hundred million uh, people who lived in India. And India was a prophet. All the companies are called the East India Company, the West India Company, and the fact that in the, in the Caribbean they called it the Indies because of the fact that India represented, and the fact that the Native Americans were called Indians. Uh, India represented the triumph of imperialism. It paid to be an empire. And the empire was supported, not from Europe alone, because Europe did not have the resources to do so. But it was supported by the rest of the world. And England was the master at it, Australia, New Zealand. And it populated it. Originally, uh, Australia was populated as a penal colony. They took people out of the jail. Maybe that's why it was so successful. there's a legend, I don't know if it's true or not, but whenever I visited Australia, they told me the legend that on one of the ships, uh, nine Jews came on the ship. They were prisoners. They were taken out of uh, debtor's prison, whatever. And so they sent the message back to England, send us another Jews, and we'll have a minion. <laughs> and that's how the original synagogues in Australia began. But uh, all over the world, uh, the English uh, flag flew, and it was very profitable for England. Disraeli was the uh, architect of it, but it was continued throughout, uh, even uh, at the end of the Second World War, Winston Churchill said, I did not become prime minister to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire, but that's exactly what happened. And uh, so you had competing empires. So Germany, uh, Cecil Rhodes, who was the uh, British uh, explorer and governor in in, uh, Africa. So he dreamt of uh, a swath of Africa, north to south, from Egypt all the way to South Africa, under British domination. So you had uh, South Africa... And then you had Rhodesia, and then it was southern Rhodesia and more than northern Rhodesia. Today it's Zambia and Zimbabwe. And then you had Kenya and Sudan. And finally you get the Egypt, so England controlled the middle of Africa. And Germany is in the middle there. Germany controlled part of Uganda. The French uh, controlled... Uh, Other Mali and other countries uh, that exist today, they still speak French there. So you had all of these competing empires uh, rubbing up against each other. And uh, because of this, uh, you had constant friction, constant danger of war. But at least the war was not in Europe. The war was going to be in Africa, was going to be in America, was going to be in South America, was going to be in the West Indies. It was not going to be in Europe. Now The Jews uh, reacted, as I mentioned, to all of these colonial developments, and they, uh, they saw it as an opportunity, an opportunity to get out of Europe, an opportunity to make a fortune, An opportunity to have a better life. Now, what happened was that uh, you had empires that did not have colonies. The Habsburg Empire, which was Austria. Austria controlled Hungary. The Austrians, the Hungarians didn't like each other. Uh, It's hard to like either of them. (laughs) So uh, what happened was that uh, in order to keep the empire together, they made what was called a dual monarchy. The dual monarchy meant that the emperor of Austria was the king of Hungary as well. And it was called the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was very unwieldy because uh, Hungary had parliamentary rights. It could veto certain things and on top of it, Austria looked to have an empire in Europe. They were, Austria is landlocked, they didn't have any ports on, so they wanted to have ports on the Adriatic. In order to have ports on the Adriatic, you had to control the Balkans. Now the Balkans is a uh, uh, a swath of land Uh, that is riven with blood for thousands of years. Different ethnic groupings that just don't like each other, never have liked each other, and often make war against each other. We had a Balkan war in the 1990s, and in fact NATO today still has uh, a large force of troops in uh, Bosnia and on the Serbian border in order to uh, try and keep the peace. So Austria, uh, there was Croatia, there was Slovenia, there was Serbia, there was Montenegro, there was Bosnia, there was Kosovo. All of these are uh, different groups, many times different religions. Uh, the Slavs basically were Russian or Greek Orthodox, while uh, the Croats were uh, Roman Catholics, Slovenian.
0: Rabbi Merrill Wine on Imperial it's Europe. Europe. Uh, we will open tomorrow, Thursday morning, here at JM in the AM with that uh, lecture. And... Um, And then continue uh, with more of our wine's lectures. Information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. And of course, RabbiWin.com, Rabbi uh for information about all of his lectures. Uh, pay attention, careful attention, to our network programming all through the day. It'll be appropriate selections for the three weeks and nine days uh, as we continue our three weeks format until uh, Wednesday, the middle of the day, the day after Tisha B'av, And then we start our journey uh, to Israel with our friends at uh, NCSY. Looking forward to an amazing Yom NCSY on Thursday and an incredible visit to the NCSY programs next Friday morning. Acheneh Israel, and Acheneh brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Round the world, the web at Nahumsegal.com on the Nahumsegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a Wednesday for us here at JM and AM. Thanks so much for tuning in. Tomorrow we're back with plenty more in our three weeks, nine days format. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Till tomorrow, Nahumsegal reminding you remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.